0: Hi everyone, this is Aaron Cohen. We recently released our first ever Embrace Everything Mahler movie. It's called Mahler and the Maestro, and it uses the Bradley Cooper Maestro movie as a springboard to talk about Leonard Bernstein's affinity for Mahler's music and how he brought Mahler back into the spotlight in the 1960s. There's an audio version of the episode in the podcast feed, but we also have a video version, which includes a treasure trove of archival images supplied by the New York Philharmonic That accompanies the audio. Be sure to check that out on our website. Season 2 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler was made possible by a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. You can find a complete list of pieces and performers featured in this episode on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. The fifth and final movement of Mahler's Second Symphony was the last piece of a puzzle Mahler had been trying to solve for six years. He'd written the first movement in 1888, the middle movements in 1893, and it wasn't until 1894 that he finally figured out how to end this colossal work, and where this spiritual journey would lead him. In this episode, we'll begin by investigating the ideas Mahler drew upon to make this final journey, and then we'll dive into the music. I'm Aaron Cohen. I hope you enjoy it. The last movement is unforgettable. Music professor Marilyn McCoy of Columbia University.
1: You finally arrive at this place that has been hinted at so many times, and it's just glorious. I mean, the the music is glorious. If you haven't understood a thing of what happened in the hour before now, you don't even care. I think the reason why it changes people's lives is that it's so majestic and it's so all-encompassing. And if you get pulled up by that wave, it's a wave that it doesn't like throw you down on the sand. It sort of throws you up into heaven. And not everyone can get on that train. But if you can, then it, it is, it's transformative. You just, you can't believe it.
0: The intensity of the last movement even tops that of the first movement. Mahler said this. If anyone were
2: told that the loudest parts in the first movement were only a weak child compared to those in the last movement, he would be afraid for his eardrums. How huge are the sound waves that are released here? They would kill a person if the increase in sound weren't such a gradual one.
1: This is one of those things that Mahler does, I think, better than most other composers. It's just he harnesses sound in such a way that we are transported. We don't have senses left to even describe what's happening.
2: The whole thing sounds as though it came from another world. And I think there is no one who can resist it. One is battered to the ground
0: and then raised on angels' wings to the highest heights. Mahler uses music to remind us of our own divinity and the eternal wonder of the world around us. He draws upon various sources and puts them all together to present his own ideas about spirituality, his own religion. Caroline Kita, a professor of German and comparative literature at Washington University in St. Louis.
3: It's challenging to trace clear statements on any particular religious tradition in Mahler's works. He kind of picks and chooses, and he doesn't give us one maybe clear idea to contrast with another.
2: Mahler said this, When I conceive a large musical painting, I always come to the point where I must enlist the word as the bearer of my musical idea. It must have happened in a similar way with Beethoven in his ninth, only that the times then could not yet provide him with the suitable materials for the purpose for the Schiller poem is not essentially able to formulate the unprecedented things that were in his mind.
0: The German poet and playwright Friedrich Schiller wrote his Ode to Joy in 1785, and Beethoven had a choir sing it as the climax of his Ninth Symphony. Mahler was clearly inspired by this. For a long time, I'd been pondering the idea of including a choir in the last movement.
2: Only the fear that this might be considered an overt imitation of Beethoven made me hesitate
0: again and again. But all that changed in February 1894, after the conductor Hans von Bülow died. He'd been a mentor to Mahler.
2: When Bülow died, I attended his funeral. The mood I was in as I sat there thinking of the deceased was very much in the spirit of the work I had on my mind at that time. Then, from the organ loft, the choir sang Klopstock's Resurrection Chorale. This hit me like lightning, and everything appeared clearly and distinctly before me. Every creative artist waits for that stroke of lightning. It's a kind of holy conception. Mahler had been waiting years for this inspiration. I now had to create in notes what I experienced then. And yet, had I not already carried this work within myself, how could I have experienced it? Yet thousands
0: sat with me in that moment in the church. It was life's experiences that triggered Mahler, his compositional mind ready to transform his thoughts, feelings, and emotions into music. And thus it always is with me. Only when I experience do I compose. Only when I compose do I experience. Friedrich Klopstock was an important German poet of the 18th century, and Mahler would turn to his work in the final movement of the symphony, quoting the opening two stanzas of the famed Klopstock poem. Here they are in translation. Rise again,
2: yes, rise again with you, my dust, after a brief rest. Eternal life, eternal life will he who called you give you. To bloom again are you sown. The Lord of the harvest goes and gathers the sheaves of us who have died.
0: After this, Mahler wrote six more verses of his own. We'll talk about a few key lines of Mahler's text, and you'll hear all of them when we get to the symphony. I spoke to Joanna Neely, a professor of German at Oxford University, about why this was important.
4: In both the Klopstock song and the Mahler setting, they both end with an ascension to God, but the path to eternal life is really different in the two poems. And I think he writes in the spirit of Klopstock, in the sense that emotion is is central, the emotional experience, but he applies it to possibly a more secular sense. It's man's living and suffering and loving that's divine in itself. And there's no need of of Christ as a mediator to bring that salvation. The belief all is about salvation through one's own life. And it really reminds me of Goethe's Faust, which is very modern in its treatment of redemption.
0: In Goethe's Faust, the idea of redemption takes a new form. Instead of doing something to be saved from sin or earning one's way into heaven, redemption instead means striving towards being your most authentic self, including the mistakes along the way. And this noble striving is divine. Goethe was one of Mahler's favorite authors, and this idea is embedded in the message of the last movement. When looking for the words he would use to write his final text, Mahler would draw inspiration from his friend, the poet, philosopher, and playwright Siegfried Lippiner, and especially Lippiner's epic poem Prometheus Unbound. The mythic Greek character Prometheus has had many portrayals in music, including Karl Goldmark's Prometheus overture, which we're listening to now. In Lippiner's reinvention of the Prometheus story, the final chapter is called Redemption. The Prometheans sing a heroic world song.
5: And from valley to valley... From mountain to mountain sounded the mighty choir, redemption, redemption.
0: By striving to be your most authentic self, redemption also means awakening the divine within. You can comprehend what is divine, but you are also divine.
5: You are the song and you are the singer. You are the string and the sound. You are the struggle and the peace. You are the heartbeat and the heart. You are the most fiery of joys, and you are the highest pain.
0: It's the highest pain which points us to our highest joy. Death awakens us to how precious life is. On the cover page of Prometheus Unbound, Lippiner used this quote. It comes from Corinthians in the New Testament.
5: What you sow shall not come to
0: life unless it has died first. Mahler would refashion this statement and use this line for his final text. What has come into being must perish. What has perished must rise again. Mahler ends his symphony with humanity soaring upwards. Caroline Kita,
3: This image of soaring above definitely has a correspondence in Lipiner's Prometheus poem. The language here is a lot of what we see returning in Mahler's Second Symphony.
0: Here's how Lipiner portrayed the ascension
5: of Prometheus. And the wings of the stormy winds held him steadily above the flames, spinning upwards. He felt himself soaring between heaven and earth, over himself, under himself,
2: into infinity. And here are some of the final lines Mahler wrote. With wings that I've won for myself, in love's fierce striving I shall soar upwards to the light which no eye
0: has penetrated. Mahler added another important line. I shall die to live. The idea of resurrection and rebirth was something Mahler believed in. We shall all return. The whole of existence has meaning
2: only because of this certainty. It's a matter of complete indifference whether we recall an earlier stage of our existence at a later point of our return. What matters is not the individual and his memory and contentment
0: but only the great movement toward perfection and the purification that increases with each incarnation. There's also a secondary meaning for the phrase, I shall die to live. If we think about the entire journey of the symphony, how we started in defiant anger, and in the last movement, how we'll ultimately let go of our own needs to embrace all of humanity, our old self has died and a new self is born. We have died to live. This is the metaphor of the Second Symphony. Mahler's final ascension to God will be a resurrection, but not a traditionally Christian resurrection. Marilyn McCoy.
1: And so he makes it into kind of a a humanistic resurrection, where, first of all, it's very important to him that, that no one is judged and no one goes to hell. No one has to suffer for their mistakes or for their sins. And then the other thing that's important to him is that The things that you have suffered and the things that you have overcome and the things that you have done are what will lead you into the afterlife, which is assumed to be joyful and triumphant.
0: Joanna Neely.
4: So man sort of gets himself to heaven through his own creativity, through his own feeling and through his own striving. And I wonder if salvation doesn't even have to mean heaven as such, but rather Salvation that's found because we recognize that our life has had meaning.
0: By defining what it is that takes us to heaven, Mahler has also told us how to live now, in this life, by striving to be our most authentic selves, by following our hearts and chasing our passions, by waking up to our own divinity and participating within the mystery of an awe-inspiring universe. And at the same time, recognizing our unbreakable connection with the rest of humanity. This will take us to a glorious afterlife. Marilyn McCoy.
1: For me, that just seems like Mahler 100%. No one ever cared more or worked harder to say something really special. And so in some ways, it's, it's an unbelievably autobiographical statement of you know what he at that time wanted to think about death and what happened after death.
0: In the summer of 1894, as Mahler was putting the final touches on the last movement, he wrote this to his childhood friend, Fritz Leur. Dear Fritz, this is to announce the happy arrival
2: of a strong and healthy last movement of the Second Symphony. Father and child are faring appropriately in the circumstances. The latter is not yet out of danger. By the end of the summer, he wrote this to another friend. The fifth movement is grandiose, concluding with a chorus for which I've written the words myself. The sketch is complete down to the last detail, and I'm just completing the score. It's a bold work, majestic in structure.
0: The final climax is colossal. Here is the final movement of Mahler's Second Symphony. We again confront all the dreadful
2: questions and the mood at the end of the first movement. And now the resolution of the terrible problem of life,
0: redemption. Mahler believed that music can fulfill the same experience as a religious rite. Caroline Keita.
3: I mean, this is tragic art. We have people coming together to retell a narrative about the death of a heroic figure whose suffering the audience learns of and experiences together and then experiences this sort of cathartic celebration of an overcoming of death. And this is, you know, what draws people to religion in essence is the sense of of community, of sharing a tradition or a narrative and, and being a part of something greater. Why can't a symphony do what a Greek tragedy might do.
0: The music announces the day of the last judgment, when all are hoping for redemption and transcendence. Mahler made this notation in the score. Horns in the greatest possible number, blown very strongly and set up in the distance. He also put a quote from Isaiah 40 in the Old Testament. A Voice Cries in the Wilderness Marilyn McCoy
1: That's supposed to be John the Baptist sort of saying prepare the way of the Lord and in this case it's sort of like a voice crying in the wilderness um,
0: calling people to judgment Mala creates his own sermon pulling spiritual and religious ideas from many sources. He described the last movement like this. A colossal fresco of the Day of Judgment. And like many frescoes, there are several panels side by side, telling the story.
1: There are spaces between these sections. So they are indeed sort of chapters in a story.
0: Mahler now introduces three themes that will return throughout the movement, each of them in embryonic form.
1: They have very clear, symbolic meanings if one knows the text of the finale, and if one knows a little bit about music history.
0: The first of those themes reaches back many centuries to the Dies Irae, a melody associated with death and the day of judgment. Mahler uses only the first four notes of the Dies Irae. And now we hear the resurrection melody for the first time, the second of the three symbolic themes in this movement. To create it, Mahler literally flipped the Dies Irae theme upside down. It signifies rebirth, and this is the melody that's going to challenge death. Here are the words that will eventually be set to this music, towards the end of the movement. Rise again. Yes, rise again, will you, my dust, after a brief rest. And then we hear the horns of judgment, this time in the orchestra, ushering in the sounds of heaven and resurrection. Now we hear the offstage horns playing with the orchestra. Heaven and earth intermingle for the first time. Carter Bray, principal cello of the New York Philharmonic. I think he means for it to be perceived as a very
2: important message from another world. When you have these offstage voices, uh, they seem to come from another dimension.
0: During this final movement, we again have two kinds of music at war with each other. This time, the war is between musical opposites, death and rebirth. This great battle of life and death, which we all must confront, can be frightening. Which brings us to the third and final melody. These are the words that will eventually be sung to this melody. Oh, believe my heart. Oh, believe. The melodies are built from musical sighs. In this case, sighs of fear. Marilyn McCoy.
1: There's tremolo strings under it, so it sounds like someone just trembling and terrified and afraid.
0: all three themes have been introduced. The battle of life and death begins. The Dies Irae is played as a chorale by the brass section, with many instruments blending like a chorus. Austin Howell, principal tuba of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. The second symphony has those chorales, which are Not only unique among Mahler, but among, I would say, all composers. There's nothing quite like that that we do that typifies that type of playing that we do in any other piece that I can think of. Again, death's great challenger appears, the resurrection theme. horns of judgment, which were originally offstage calls, are about to be radically transformed. The gates of heaven swing open for the first time. I don't know that there's a lot, out of all music written, that I enjoy more than those specific moments. In addition to the living, the dead will be raised for this great day of judgment. All of humanity, throughout all of time, are being judged. Every living person, and every person who ever lived. Mahler said this, The earth trembles.
2: Just listen to the drum roll, and your hair will stand on end. The last trumpet sounds... The graves spring open, and all creation comes writhing out of the bowels of the earth, with wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now they all come marching along in a mighty procession. Beggars and rich men, common folk and kings, the church militant, the popes, all give vent to the same terror the same lamentations and paroxysms, for none
0: is just in the sight of God. The this era is turned into a military march. But the resurrection theme isn't far behind. McCoy. It
1: sounds like a battle, a, a real battle going on. If you know the program, you know that it's a spiritual battle.
0: And in this battle, death is losing. The bells of heaven call to humanity. Mahler conducted the world premiere of the Second Symphony in Berlin in 1895. His friend Natalie Bauer Lechner was there.
6: Mahler conducted these rehearsals with lightning speed and intensity. He stamped with his feet when he wasn't satisfied, slashed the air with his baton whenever he heard a wrong note, shouted and raged when a musician would not admit to a mistake he had made, but calmed down as soon as he had confessed it.
0: Mahler was known to be a tyrant on the conductor's podium. Everyone must give his all. In fact, more than that. He must go a step
2: beyond his own capacity. And I force them to do it. For each one feels that I'll immediately pounce on him and tear him to pieces if he doesn't give me what
0: I want. Whatever his methods, Mahler's performances were legendary.
6: When. Passage where the graves burst open. Mahler called for the maximum power. The tympanist protested that the drum skin would break. Mahler retorted that he should go ahead and break it, and didn't relax his demands by a hair's breadth. Likewise, the cymbal player often didn't strike hard enough. Once Mahler scolded him severely for this. Having summoned all his strength for the cymbal crash, the player demanded. Is that loud enough? Mahler cried,
2: Still louder.
6: Whereupon he crashed his cymbals with shattering force and with an expression that seemed to say, The devil himself can't do better than that. At this, Mahler shouted, Bravo, that's the way. And now louder still.
0: It appears the battle has calmed down, although fear remains. An apocalyptic marching band is approaching. Conductor Kent Nagano. It's not a direct threat on stage, you hear it in the distance in the background against it very, very melancholic and sadness to the point of desperation and weeping in the strings. We have three things happening at once, the offstage band, the musical size of Fear, and another counterpoint melody on top of that.
2: The passage is rhythmically very difficult to keep together.
0: Michael Sachs, principal trumpet of the Cleveland Orchestra.
2: It's very theatrical with the way he uses space and time and uses the offstage instruments. He's always juxtaposing all these different sort of layers of of
0: character and and emotions kind of all, all amongst each other in a very operatic way. And just like opera, it is very dramatic. The apocalyptic marching band gets closer and closer until it walks into the room. This moment is meant to be terrifying. It builds until the fear can no longer be contained, and we hear the death shriek from the third movement. But then... Just as in the third movement after a huge outburst we see eternity peeking through we're reminded of something greater beyond ourselves Caroline Kita
3: Part of this is a journey of self-discovery
0: divinity is everywhere and we all participate whether we're aware of it or not
3: one discovers it within oneself and one recognizes it in all beings
0: Mahler's close friend Siegfried
5: Lipiner put it like this. Take the divinity of the world into your will, and it will come down from its throne.
0: Lippiner believed that art helps us recognize the divinity within ourselves and throughout the world, and Lippiner said in our most enlightened moments, we'll be struck by the most profound thought.
5: The world as a work of art. In such moments, our sensibility is filled by the most sacred religious shudder. And the world as artwork, this world of religious intuition, it, our sensibility, will faithfully and reverently call God.
0: Humankind is about to meet its maker. Mahler wrote this title in the score. The Great Roll Call. By now, all of humanity, living and dead are standing before the throne of God, waiting to be judged.
2: The Last Trumpet Sounds from the Beyond the awful silence, we think we hear in the farthest distance a nightingale, like a last quivering echo of earthly life. The trumpets from the apocalypse call.
0: Mahler also referred to the nightingale as the bird of death. Paiute, principal flute of the Berlin Philharmonic. You lose the
3: feeling of pulse and time. It's a huge cadenza, but in the same time, you have a lot of activity going on.
4: We've left being an earth. We're uh,
0: just going up, moving upwards, and it's a, it's a vertical journey uh, to something completely spiritual. Mahler put it this way.
2: There now follows nothing of what had been expected. No last judgment, no soul saved and none damned, no just man, no evildoer, no judge. Everything has ceased to be. Softly, there rings out a chorus of the holy and the heavenly rise again yes rise again again will you my dust after a brief rest Eternal life, eternal life will he who called you give you,
0: Marilyn McCoy,
1: the soprano soloist has entered with the chorus in a really wonderful way. She kind of starts singing with them and then eventually kind of emerges out above them and sings this gorgeous sort of floating note above them. Mahler never said anything about this, but it's almost as if it's sort of like an angel, you know, sort of singing with humankind and kind of rising up into the air above them.
0: Mahler put it like this. There appears the glory of God. A wonderful, gentle light permeates
2: us to our very heart. All is quiet and blissful. And behold, there is no judgment. There is no sinner, no righteous man. No great and no small, there is no punishment and no reward. An almighty feeling of love illuminates us with the blessed knowing and being.
3: This isn't about judgment. There's no judgment day here. It's about compassion and about love.
2: To bloom again are you sown. Lord of the harvest goes. He goes and gathers the sheaves of us who have died.
0: Christine Lee Jangaro, a music professor at Los Angeles City College.
4: You can die and rise along with this hero in this music. Yes, there are words, and yet it still kind of catches you on a visceral level more than the words can say, which is, I think, the miracle of it, actually.
0: From this point onwards, the lyrics being sung are Mahler's own. I simply had to go through the whole of world literature, including
2: the Bible, in search of the right word, the open sesame. And in the end, had no choice but to find my own words for my thoughts and feelings.
0: And the words that Mahler wrote changed the course of our spiritual journey significantly. Caroline Kita.
3: In the fourth movement, The uh, speaker is demanding entrance into heaven, which seems to be a sort of individual struggle. But in the final movement, we have the same alto singer making a plea on behalf of all humanity. And this is the kind of transformation I see. What begins as a kind of individual plea becomes about something greater. And once it becomes about something greater, this is when the real transformation happens.
0: Here's the mezzo-soprano singing Mahler's words. Oh, believe, my heart, oh, believe.
2: Nothing of yours will be lost. All that you've desired is yours. All that you've loved and fought for is
4: yours.
0: These are words Mahler needed to hear. Marilyn McCoy.
1: I think the thought that it was all for nothing, he just couldn't bear it.
0: Oh, believe, you were not born for nothing. A soprano takes over Mahler's words.
2: You have not lived and suffered in vain.
0: Mahler's question from the first movement has been answered.
1: Was this life just a cruel joke? The answer is no, it's not for nothing.
0: Everything you do in life matters. What has come into
2: being must perish. What has perished must rise again.
0: Caroline Keita.
3: Death is not an end, but just a transition to another state of consciousness. And it's not a traditional vision of heaven or hell, but it's this illuminated sense of knowing.
0: And there is nothing to be afraid of. Cease from trembling.
2: Cease from
7: trembling.
2: Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself yourself. To live. O pain, you piercer of all things, from you I've been wrested. O death, you conqueror of all things, now you are conquered.
0: will take flight by harnessing the combined power of more than 300 musicians on stage. Emmanuel Paiut. And the means that he's using are just tremendous. One single man is
3: moving the entire earth with uh, this incredible power of music and inspiration.
4: With
2: wings that I've won for myself in love's fierce striving, I shall soar upwards to the light which no eye has penetrated. I shall
0: die. Gigantic musical wings, sending us to heaven.
2: Rise again. Yes, you will rise again, my heart, in the twinkling of an eye. What you have fought for will lead you to God. Carter Bray. It's the most extraordinary effect. It's like the bursting of the world's
3: biggest dam.
1: Basically, after you've made your way through the symphony, and especially after you've made your way through this finale, you have arrived at a different place. You have arrived in heaven, in whatever Mahler imagined heaven to be, or whatever you imagine heaven to be, because Mahler opened it to everyone. Everyone's welcome. What could be better?
0: Been listening to Embrace Everything: The World of Gustav Mahler. I'm your host, Aaron Cohen. I also wrote and produced the program. James Lurie was the voice of Gustav Mahler. Laura Grackmans was the voice of Natalie Bauer-Lechner, and Robert Fass was the voice of Siegfried Lippener. Our musical and historical advisor is Marilyn McCoy. I had editing assistance from Jamie Katz, Paul Thomason, Will Berger, and Marin Lazian. The program was mixed by Rick Kwan. Engineers included Brendan Sweeney, Steve Tyson, and Sarah Nill at Audio Media Production. Leszek Wojcik and Noriko Okabe at Carnegie Hall Studios. Larry Josephson and Ben Elman at the Radio Foundation. Dennis Bentley at KWMU in St. Louis. Bart Rankin at New England Public Media. James Tomlin at Oxford Digital Media. Harrison Paul at Garden of Sound in Los Angeles. And Gar Raglan at Citizen Vinyl in Asheville, North Carolina. Klopstock's Rise Again Chorale was sung by Ethan Cooper. German-to-English translations were done by Fiona Sinkel, Lucas Krohn-Grimberga, Caroline Kita, and Marilyn McCoy. A very special thank you to Lena Kaplan, Marcella Silva, and Danielle St. Marie at the Kaplan Foundation. Thanks also to Jen Lutzo, Lena Palol, Justin Holden, Pascal Wime, Michelle-Andre Lanoux, Connie Schumann, and Lisa Janig. Thanks as well to Robin Billenkoff, Ed Yim, and Jenny Hauser at New York Public Radio, and Brad Garten at Prentice Hall at Columbia University. I had terrific support from Jennifer Barnett, Jason Starr, and Rose Sullivan. All the details of the Embrace Everything series can be found on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. Season 2 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler, is dedicated to the memory of my friend, Gilbert Kaplan. Until next time, I'm Aaron Cohen.